This podcast is presented to you by Pastor Derek Armstrong and Word of Grace Community Church. For more information, please visit WOGCC.com. Well, it is so good, good, good to be with you. I've already felt uh, the presence of the Lord. I know you have. I'm sorry I wore my uh, southern uniform, but the only other shirt I had was Dallas Cowboys, and I thought probably I I shouldn't wear that. (laughs) I've entered the enemy's territory in some way. (laughs) But my wife is an Aaron Rodgers fan, so we're going to take the tour on Thursday. So... (laughs) I have an honor not only to be with you, but to present what I think is a very important biblical book. And the great honor is to get a chance to teach the Word of God. Paul's great doctrinal book, his first one was Galatians. He developed those truths into Romans to introduce himself to the church in Rome to go on a trip to Spain. Later on, heresy came, and Paul took the great truths of Galatians and Romans and capsuled them into Ephesians. And Ephesians is a cyclical letter written to many churches to prepare them for the false teaching that was coming. All of Paul's letters are what we call occasional documents. Something caused him to write, and he writes to that. So the first three chapters of Ephesians are the doctrinal answer to the problems these churches faced. The last three chapters of Ephesians are how do we apply those doctrines to our lives. So today I'm going to be doing chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, if you'll turn to Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to go verse by verse. It's just one sentence. (laughs) It's 14 verses long, but it's just one sentence in Greek. So... But it really has this wonderful message, and I hope you'll follow with me. Now, I want to make a couple of opening statements. I'm smart enough to know that I don't know. I've been studying the Bible for 40 years. I love and believe the Bible. But we all don't agree. So if you'll let me present what I, what I think it says with my personality, I'm going to let you Pray about it, think about it, look at the Bible, and walk in the light you have. Amen? Amen. Now, when I get going, you're (laughs) going to know what I'm talking about. Somebody said, listening to you, Utley, is like drinking out of a fire hose. Because I am going, when I get going, I'm going to hit it, right? If you you think you're going to take notes, you can get over it now. Because you're not. You're just not. I have brought these notes for you. Your church has made some copies of these notes. I have a free Bible commentary on every book of the Bible that I've written that I'm going to give away free starting Monday night. And those notes are in there if you'll just come and get one. You have to come back. Okay. <laughs> Somebody once said to me, Bob, we think you'll make heaven if you don't run past it. <laughs> so you're, you're going to get that when I get going in just a minute, okay? So just... Um, Strap in and listen quicker, all right? Now, the reason this second chapter is so important is, remember I said that the first three chapters are doctrinal. Now, the false teachers I'm going to deal with Monday night, we call them Gnostics. If you recently, it's been several years now, got watched the Da Vinci Code, many, many people called me and said, oh, Bob, what's this all about? We never heard this. They were completely uninformed Christians 
about the false books. One of them is the Gospel of Thomas that we found in Coptic, not even in Greek. The early church didn't lose these books. or The early church denied these books and refused to accept them. But these false teachers, which emphasize the place of the human in salvation, were the, were the early church's main enemy for 300 years. So it is not by accident that the first three chapters of Ephesians depreciate the place of the human individual and accentuate the place of God. Now follow with me. One of the most definitive chapters on predestination, matter of fact, Ephesians was John Calvin's favorite book, is Ephesians chapter 1. I'll deal with that Monday night. Chapter 2 that I'm dealing with this morning is maybe the best definitive chapter in all the Bible on the undeserved, unmerited grace of God. Then beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 3, verse 13, is the mystery hidden from the ages, but now revealed in Christ that Jew and Gentile are now one in Christ. There's no more male, there's no more female, there's no more slave, there's no more free, there's no more Jew, there's no more Greek. We're all one in Christ and all the human dividers are down. That, that would have been shocking to a first century world. But that's exactly what this third doctrine is. And all of those have to do with who God is, not who we are. Amen? Now, if you turn your Bibles, I'm going to be going verse by verse. And uh, what, I'm gonna, uh, what I hope to do, more than anything, we're not going to see if you agree with me and vote at the end. No, no. I want to stimulate you to think. People say to me, well, I believe that. And I think it's fair for me to say to anybody who claims to speak for, for God, can you show me in the Bible where you got that? Now, that's not an ugly statement. But that is keeping everyone who claims to speak to God's feet against the only source of inspiration we have, which is Scripture, right? Scripture is the only source for faith and practice. So we must go back to it again and again. Now, it's sure possible we could interpret it differently. Certainly we could. But we must go back to it first. My students sometimes say, well, Wesley said, or Calvin said, or... Whoever said, and I say to them, that's wonderful, but they're not authority. And neither is your mother. Amen. And neither is your denomination. Amen. Scripture is authority, amen? So we're struggling to understand what the original, only inspired author was saying to the people of his day. Once we understand that, then we must apply that truth by the Holy Spirit to our day. But what I find happening in churches today, people get together and say, well, this is what it means to me. I don't want to be rude, but who cares what it means to you? I mean, really, who are you? Who am I? We are sinful people, damaged by a fallen world system, damaged by personal sin, damaged by a satanic tempter. No, no, we've got to go back to what this original author said and then try to document that from the words he used, the context, literary and historical, unique grammatical features, parallel passages in the Bible, because the best interpreter of an inspired book is the inspired book. And then what kind of literature is it? What kind of genre? And this, of course, is letter. So let's begin then. I think, though this is one letter, 
it really breaks into three subjects. In verses 1 through 3 is the hopelessness and helplessness of man. In verses 4 through 7 is the unmerited grace of God. And verses 8 through 10, how do humans respond to that kind of love? So follow with me. And you, whenever it's you in here, it means you Gentiles. And whenever it's we, it means we Jews. And this text, it's believing Gentiles and believing Jews. So you, the churches he's writing to, not one, but several, there's no personal greetings, there's no personal goodbyes in Ephesians. This is a cyclical book, and I'll show it to you in chapter 1, verse 1, when we get there, Monday night. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I thought to myself, here is Paul, a member of the uh, community of the Middle East, the Mediterranean world, with all of its large, huge, beautiful cities. And as Paul the Apostle looked out over those great metropolitan areas, he saw human beings going through the things that all human beings go through. They're going to work. They're getting married. They're providing food. All those things of life. And Paul looked out through the eyes of faith and said, they look alive, but they're dead. God have mercy on us. Do you realize that the culture we live in is dead? Apart from God, confused and lost and estranged, and they don't even know it? And the only, the only message that can solve the deterioration of this culture or any culture is the message you sang about. It's the message of the gospel. So Paul looked out on the people of his day. Their lungs were pumping air. Their hearts were pumping blood. And Paul said they're dead in their trespasses and sins. Now, you know, the Bible uses the word death or dead three different ways. Let's just quickly review those. First is Genesis 3. As you know, this is the, the Garden of Eden. This is God telling Adam of all the trees you may eat, but of the tree in the midst of the garden you may not eat. In the day you eat of it, you will die. I'm not sure Adam knew what death was, but he knew it wasn't good. And yet, Eve tempted, ate, she, she's still alive. Adam ate, he's still alive. But their relationship with God was damaged. Their relationship with each other was damaged. His relationship with himself was damaged. And his relationship to this planet was damaged. We call that spiritual death. But that's what Ephesians 2 is talking about. They looked alive, but they were spiritually dead. If you go a little further in Genesis, you get to the fifth chapter. And this is why I tell no one to start reading the Bible in Genesis. Because nobody makes it through this one, right? All these names you never heard of. And they're dead, they're dead, they're dead, they're dead, they're dead, they're dead. Thank God for Enoch. Everybody else is dead. Now that's physical death. Which says, if spiritual death is not taken care of before physical death, then results the third kind of death. It's found in the letters to the, to the seven churches of Revelation and in Revelation chapter 20. And it's called the second death. Now we would call it hell. Hell is a popular subject today and it's inappropriate to speak in some churches. The problem is the person in the Bible who talks about hell the most is Jesus Christ. The word hell only appears one time except in the mouth of Jesus in James where it says our tongue is set on fire by hell. But I, I want to touch on hell just for a minute. This separation uh, uh, from God. I think really the book of Revelation with those seven cycles of judgment in increasing numbers is God justifying that he's tried, he's tried, he's tried, he's tried 
And human beings will not. So those who will not, he separates so he can get on with the purpose of creation, which is fellowship with human beings made in his image. But I want to say to you, as bad as hell is for human beings, hell is worse for God. Because God made and loved every one of you. Psalms 139 said you're made physically and emotionally according to God's will. God loves you and made you for himself. And when some people, when most people turn away from him, I think hell is an open bleeding sore in the heart of God that will never be healed. I'm not sure God ever has a good day because of the reality of evil and rebellion. He has sent us into the world to make a difference right here. Because he, he didn't die because he loves you so much. He died because he loves mankind so much. And he wants more and more to come to know him. Now the three enemies of man are spelled out here also. There's only two places in the Bible these three enemies are named. Here and in James chapter 4. Look at your Bibles with me. We are dead in our trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. Now the word walked in the Bible... If, if it means Jesus walked from Jerusalem to Jericho, it's literal. But most of the time, particularly here in Ephesians, the word walk means this, your spiritual life. Think of Ephesians 5.2, um, which says walk, talking about spiritual life. Think of uh, 5.17, walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. Um, over and over, the word walk means their spiritual lives. So, as you formerly walked according to what? The course of this world. Now, this is literally the world age. We live in a flavor. I think they're going to, in the future, when, if the Lord doesn't come back, when historians look at our age and look at the church, they're going to call it the what's in it for me church. <laughs> That's how, do you serve chicken on Wednesday? Well, I'll come. You know, yuck. Just crazy me questions that come up again and again. The point here is we are bombarded every day. If you have this, you'll be happy. If you drive this, you'll be happy. If you live here, you'll be happy. But friends, I know people who drive that and live there and they aren't happy. I remember, um, it's been years ago, but I've been watching these commercials lately and it's going to get worse for Christmas. Uh, it's, this, it's this perfume. It's $550 an ounce at Macy's, right? But if you use this perfume, there's this woman, she's kind of sad. She's in Colorado walking by the stream and the aspens are quaking. Now, first of all, You've got to be a real nerd to be in Colorado by the spring and be unhappy. But beside that, and she puts on this perfume. And suddenly a man on a white horse comes riding off the hill. and You've got to be a fool to believe that. And they sell that perfume by the gallon. If you just drive this Corvette, you'll be happy. No, you'll be an old toot in the Corvette. That's what you'll be. What is the matter with us? I remember my, when my, one of my last son was in junior high. We'd give our kids money every year then to buy school clothes. And he said, Dad, I need some more money. I said, no, that's all you're going to get. He said, well, I've got to have this certain kind of blue jeans. I said, what? He said, I've got to have this certain kind of blue jeans, and they're $60. I said, Wranglers are $14.95. What, what is the matter with you? He said, Dad, if I don't have these blue jeans, I won't be accepted at school. In many parts of our country, we had to start helping young people wear the same clothes to school so they wouldn't kill themselves for sports memorabilia. Do you think if you wear a certain kind of shirt or pants or shoes, you'll be happy? You're going to be a dressed up, miserable nerd. That's what you're going to be. (laughs) 
But that's this world. I can give you happiness. I drive by some of the beautiful homes and I wonder, I don't have a beautiful home, but I'm really happy. I meet people who have everything the world can offer and they're not happy because happiness is not found in things. This world promises what it cannot provide. But how many fall for it when their image of God has been damaged by self and me and more? The second enemy is also here. Notice in verse 2, the prince and the power of the air. The spirit is now working, the sons of disobedience. I certainly believe in a personal force of evil. The Bible is not clear about the origin of Satan, but it is clear about the reality of Satan. The Bible does not try to end all of our curiosity about evil, where it came from, but it does clearly show its destruction. Amen? Amen. We have a personal force of evil. I remember I was in a church somewhere in Texas, and I was talking about that Satan is a created being, and this uh, person raised their hand and said, well, I'm tempted all the time. Well, if Satan is a created being, he can't tempt all of us at the same time, right? I mean, how fast can that be? He's got, he's got minions that help him. But there is a personal force of evil. And the personal force of evil wants to hurt God by hurting those whom God loves. Let me ask you something. If someone hurts your children, is that probably the most vulnerable place to hurt you? You mean that even in this room today is the presence of the angels of God and the angels of the evil one? Yes, with the biblical worldview, you begin to see that our world is penetrated by spiritual beings. Some of those are our friends. I say our friends. My guardian angel is so mad at me, he is not going to talk to me till 10,000 years uh, anyway from what I did as a young person. But <laughs> I still got one, and, and there are those here. And I want you to think for a minute. As I'm speaking to you out of this book, in the deepest part of your mind, you're hearing a voice that says, that's true. That's from God's word. Or you're hearing a voice that says, they just want your money. They just want to mark you up. They're just trying to trick you. Now, friends, those two voices are here today. And you've got to decide which one is true and which one is for you. The third enemy is also here. If you notice the next verse. And among them, we too, we believing Jews, um, all formerly lived by the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, who are by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. The third thing is you and I are broken. I just love that song about no more fear. We're a child and daughter. I never heard that song before, but I was thinking, I can remember when I was afraid. I can remember when I thought everything I did, God was mad. He was the hanging judge of the universe. He couldn't just wait to get me. I was terrified of God. Even growing up in church, God, oh, but just, there was fear. And I can remember, I don't remember trusting Christ. I was really little, about 12. But I remember walking home from church one night and looking up at the stars and for the first time in my life, not being afraid of God. And I haven't been afraid since. Oh my goodness, what a peace can come. The world, the flesh, and the devil. This is the hopelessness and helplessness of humanity apart from God. This is the black hole of human need. Now, if I was somewhere in Texas right now, I would go, yee-haw, look at verse 4. 
Because against the black drop of human need comes the grace and mercy of God. Look at verse 4. But God, what a big but this is. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. Now watch this. Hope you have your Bibles open. In verses 5 and 6, now I know you can't see in English, but there's three Greek prepositions here. Soon compounds. Soon means joint participation with it. Look what has happened to us in Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. There's the first one. He raised us up with Him. There's the second one. He seated us with Him in the heavenly places. There's the third one. Now look back at your Bible at chapter 1, verse 20. In chapter 1, verse 20... God the Father did the same thing for Jesus. Look at one. And he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places. What God the Father did for the Son, the Son has now done for the children. This is not future. This is now. We have resurrection life now. Later in this week, I want to talk to you about the two Jewish ages, the already and the not yet. Because we live in an overlap of the old age and the new age because Christ has come twice. He came first with salvation on the colt of a donkey. But friends, next time you see him, he ain't going to be on the colt of a donkey. He's going to be on the white charger of God. Best to know him now. Best to know him now. Now, this is what God has done for us. Now, verse 7 is really interesting. I only think there are three verses in the whole Bible that talk about this. One of them is very close to your Bible. I don't see some of you turning. It's church. Bring your Bible. Bring your app. Or bring a book and fake it. But uh, <laughs> chapter 3, verse 10 is the other one. So listen to 7. In order that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ. Who is he showing this grace to by being kind to humans? Look at chapter 3, verse 10. In order that the manifold wisdom of God may now be made known to, to, through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. I think that, that what God has done for fallen, evil, rebellious humans, we are trophies of the grace of God for the angelic world to see the true character of God. The angelic world is, has hope because of how God has treated us. We, we are a revelation to the unseen world. Because of the character of God. Now verses 8 and 9, in my tradition of evangelicalism, this is the national anthem. I've heard sermons on this all of my life, 8 and 9. These are famous verses. But as a Bible teacher, I want you to know that verse 10 is the last part of the sentence. And when the Greeks want to make an important point, they put it out of order to the front or hold it to the last. The most important verse is verse 10, and it's always ignored. So let's go through 8 and 9, but then I'm going to close at 10. Listen to 8. I usually usually say this just to get you riled up to think, okay? Listen to me. No one ever has been or ever can be saved by faith. What does that verse say? For by... It is God that saves, not the merits of human beings. It's not that you cry when you hear Jesus loves me. It's not that you jump when you sing your songs. Our hope is in the unchanging character of a merciful God that sent His Son to die in our place and whosoever will. Amen? Amen. For by grace 
You have been saved. Now that you've noticed this, you have been saved was repeated up there in verse 5 in a parenthesis. This is a special construction that means you've been saved in the past and you abide in a state of salvation. It's passive voice, which means you did not save yourself, but you had to allow yourself to be acted on by an outside agent, which in this thing is one of the part, one of the Trinity. Now, the best illustration I know about this, just think of a wall with a door, and the handle for that door is on your side. When you were saved, God knocked on the door of your heart. We call it the wooing of the Holy Spirit. And you opened that door. He wouldn't kick that door down. You had to receive. You had to believe. You had to call upon. You had to confess, which means God made all the provision, but you had to accept it and receive it. That same thing is true of the Christian life. Salvation is a one-time event, but daily Christianity is a continuing to open that door that the power of God might flow through us every day. That little phrase, this is the day the Lord has made, is a pretty good way to start the day. Amen? Amen. And where I live with the drivers on the country road I live on, I've got to pray that prayer several times before I get to town. I mean, I, we leak. <laughs> I'll deal with that when we get to chapter um, on the filling of the Spirit. Okay, so here we have... Um, Verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Faith is the hand that receives the gift of God. Look at these human disclaimers. Notice these human disclaimers. Not of yourselves, gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. Now how much stronger could Paul say salvation is not about you, Gnostic false teachers. It's not about the human recipient. Yes, we must receive, but we only receive after we've been wooed. You might want to see John 6, 44 and 65. No one comes unto the Father unless the Holy Spirit draws them. You do not decide the day you're going to be saved. You don't decide the day you're going to repent. You don't decide the day you're going to get serious with God. We are responders in the spiritual realm, not initiators. We can only respond to the touch of God. That's why we say to people, that still small voice in your mind is very, very important when it coincides with scriptural truth. Because that's God speaking to you. And we are demanded that we respond to that still small voice. So, um, look at verse 10. What is the purpose of us being saved? I'm a part of a group that I think has made too much of initial salvation. We have turned salvation into a ticket to heaven that you cash in at the end of a sinful life. We've turned it into an insurance policy that you don't really use until some point in the future. Now, what I'm saying is salvation, but I'm going to scream this. Do you hear me screaming right now? When you trust Christ is not the end, it's the beginning. It starts with trusting Christ, but that's not the end of it. Because the goal, put it another way, the goal of Christianity is not that you go to heaven when you die. The goal of Christianity is Christ-likeness now so others can go to heaven with you when you go to heaven. Just think of Galatians 4.19. Do you know that verse? Paul says, I groan until Christ be formed in you. It's not a one-time prayer somewhere in the past. It's not a religious ritual done decades ago that has no intimate relation to your daily choices and daily lifestyle. Jesus wants to come live in you. He wants to blossom forth in you. 
He wants to turn you into Him so others will be drawn to Him. It's not about you going to heaven. It's about God loving a lost world through you. Look at verse 10. We are His workmanship. That's the word we get poem from that Greek word. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God beforehand prepared. That's the predestination word from chapter 1. That you walk in them. We are not saved by good works. Doesn't doesn't verse 9 say that clearly? But we are saved unto good works. God saved you to change you. Do, Do you hear what I'm saying? Christianity is a lifestyle growing daily intimacy with God, not a creed, not a ritual, not a one-hour event in a building somewhere. I think in our culture, the only way you can tell the Christians from the non-Christians is where they park their car once a week. Because in every other area of life, we turn into Christian chameleons and act and talk just like the group we happen to be with. And it's not right. Pastor, you're on. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit wogcc.org.